I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to B. Lund, Dan, Justin, Galen, Chance, Matthew Ho, Elliot, Tom, Ishtifer, Arlen, Bo, Gunner, James, Chase, Martin, Gary, Emilia, Nick, Brace, Michael, Nobody, Brian, and John. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have another double feature. Later on, we'll be speaking with Professor Jacob S. Dorman, author of Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions, about the history of Black Israelism and the recent controversy around NBA basketball player Kyrie Irving in relation to black Israelism. But first, longtime war reporter Patrick Coburn returns to the program to discuss the latest on the Russia-Ukraine war. Patrick is always a font of knowledge and insight, and he has a lot to say about the current conflict. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Patrick Coburn. Welcome back to Parallax Views. One of my favorite guests, Patrick Coburn, author of War in the Age of Trump, as well as a number of other books, a longtime war reporter. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you. So, Patrick, the last time that I had you on the show, we discussed the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And your view was that, you know, Putin had really miscalculated uh, and that, like some of the politicians in the U.S. that gave us things like the Iraq War. He had sort of drunk his own Kool-Aid and was suffering from hubris. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, that's proven very true. But where, where do you stand on uh, the situation right now? What, what's your view on how it has evolved? Well, I'd stick with what I said about Putin. That Russian aim, the Russian aim and Putin's aim 
was to uh, conquer Ukraine, and uh, they thought it would be easy, and they failed to do that in the first couple of days. And one of the questions is, what is Russian policy now? What is that? What is their aim? Are they still aiming to conquer Ukraine, or are they still looking for negotiations? You know, that's very unclear. Or are they just trying to save Putin's face um, and not come out of this war looking like a complete loser? Um, the problem about wars is that if they people say that a war is a stalemate, but that usually isn't true. Wars that go on, that don't terminate, tend to escalate and they tend to spread. And they, they do that for a very simple reason, is that both sides look for the weak spots of the other. Um, and uh, they want to give the other side a, a nasty surprise. So um, the uh, Ukrainians blow up the uh, Kirch Bridge linking uh a Crimea to the Russian mainland, that's a uh, a blow um, to Russian uh, supply lines, but also it's a very sort of public humiliation for the Russians. This was on television around the world. Then the Russians strike back by uh, launching this uh, war against the uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, and they've been hitting uh, electricity and, wa and water supplies. I, I think there's something people don't quite realize was all the... Um, the television I've seen is sort of of the ground fighting. Um, it's about the recapture of Kherson city by Ukrainians, and before that, uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, successes around Kharkiv in the east. But uh, war has changed in a way that I think people don't quite realize. Back in the 1990s, the US used to have a near monopoly of uh, precision guided missiles and drones. Uh, and I remember in 1991, the uh, U.S. Air Force completely uh, uh, devastated the Iraqi electrical system. They hit power stations, they hit the uh, um, the, the big cables, they uh, hit the uh, substations. And that, of course, uh, hits water as well. As you, you need electricity to pump water. Uh, but since then, that monopoly has been broken. A lot of people can do that now. You know, people have heard of the Iranian-made drones. Uh, uh, you can uh, hit, uh, some of these are quite cheap, or you could use uh, cruise missiles, you know, and they can hit a target precisely, like an Uber car, you know, with a driver who doesn't know which city he's in, but he can still find a certain address. And that's uh, the way, uh, you know, this uh, modern warfare works. And that was always, to my mind, the most likely escalation, and not nuclear war, which is know very terrifying and obviously everybody talks about it because uh that could set off a uh a neutral holocaust but um you know it's a very blunt instrument um in some ways it could be counterproductive to russia's aims to use nuclear sure, force yeah sure yeah I mean, where does it get them after they've launched the first strike what do, what do they do um so they've launched this uh, sort of air war on the infrastructure, you know, which has been pretty devastating. You know, there have been a big attacks today, and the water supply in Kiev, the, the capital is off, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the Dnipro in the, in the south and uh, Lviv in the west, they're all uh, suffering severe blackouts and the shortages. Uh, it's very difficult to defend yourself against this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, putting uh, big generators to supply a bit of power you know that can work and it probably works for the army you can armies can do that but you can't sort of 
power up uh, whole cities. It's, you can barely power up a few hospitals. So this is pretty devastating stuff. Now, from the Ukrainian point of view, uh, you know, they've won these big military victories, but they're not decisive victories. They're still fighting a country which is bigger than themselves. Uh, the Russian army seems to be a shambles, but uh, it hasn't actually been defeated. Um, it doesn't seem that likely that Ukraine could take Crimea, but maybe they could have a go. As uh, you know, the U.S. chief of staff, uh, Mark Milley, uh, said the other day, you know, he didn't think they could take it, and it was time for diplomacy. But it's very difficult to do that at the moment because uh, what would the Ukrainians get out of it? Would that just be a temporary pause with the, the Russians? Um, the Russians haven't, you know, had a series of defeats. Do they want to end the war that way, or will they go for a long war? But uh, you know, the normal—I'm afraid to say—the recent wars, certainly recent wars that I've observed in the Middle East, have one thing in common. They tend not to terminate. They tend to go on and on uh, because each side can think of something to do to the others. And I can't see any reason why this shouldn't happen in Ukraine unless there's some big diplomatic offensive backed by Washington. So I wanted to comment on that. I think I have a lot of listeners that would like to see uh, diplomacy in this, but I think you may be right. It, it seems like both sides in this don't necessarily have maybe an incentive um, to to see a diplomatic end to this right away. Yeah, I mean, there's a, another very simple thing about law wars. You know, the Ukrainians say 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded. I don't know if anybody knows that sort of thing, but a lot of people have died on both sides. And people in both countries will say, hold on a minute, what do we get out of this? You know, Ukrainians will say, well, we'll endure, you know, sitting in freezing apartment blocks, you know, with no electricity and having to get water in buckets and so forth. But uh, we don't want some sort of compromise. Uh, you know, it pulls both ways. Maybe some people will say, well, we want this war to end. But, you know, the longer it goes on, the greater the sacrifices, the more people want to see some return on what they've suffered. So again, that makes it more difficult. Um, you know, then what will the Ukrainians do? Because they could, they, the Ukrainians could conceivably do the same to the Russians. They could start launching uh, drones and missiles at Russian uh, power stations and uh, um, electric uh, facilities. In regards to the other front of this conflict, because I know you've written about this as well, uh, the economic war against Russia, what, what can you comment about that, uh, specifically the use of sanctions as sort of a collective punishment? Well, I've always uh, thought it's very weird how quickly the West Europeans maybe less peculiar for America to do it, because it's less dependent, obviously, on uh, Russian uh, gas, oil and gas, to launch this economic war. Now, this isn't, because here is something where, you know, they're sort of cutting off their nose to spite their face. You know, the all of Western Europe now has been hit by this tremendous surge in oil and gas prices, particularly gas prices. Uh, I'm speaking from Britain, you know, which doesn't really get much gas from um, Russia, but it, it pays, you know, an international price. So that's led to economic recession. So it's had a tremendous boomerang effect. Somebody could say, well, the Russians are hurting more. Uh, you know, their economic decline is greater than others. But, you know, all the others have declined too. So, uh, and that shouldn't be too surprising, you know, I've 
we've all seen, you know, there was an economic war launched against Iraq in 1990 after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Um, and what was the result of this? Well, it had a devastating effect on the Iraqi economy. Um, uh, it uh, Lots of skilled people left the country. The one thing it didn't do was get rid of Saddam Hussein, who went on building giant palaces and giant mosques for itself. Uh, you know, governments don't and people in charge of governments are about the last to suffer from uh, sanctions, and the similar, similar, similarly, a collective punishment against all Russians, um, you know, isn't likely to do any good. It isn't doing any good. Um, so I think it's rather amazing that people look to it. I think it's quite popular because people feel, well, we want to do something for those Russians, but this is sort of kind of benign way it's not it's not like horrible you know shooting war where lots of people get blown up and there's blood all over the place but actually sanctions you can continue them for long enough it's an economic siege and a lot of people die but they you know it's it's the sick it's the old it's the poor who die and they die in their own houses or they die in hospitals you don't see it in the streets so i think that it's a very sort of somehow it's got it's got great acceptability sanctions uh, but it has a record of almost complete ineffectiveness when it comes to regime change or getting what you want. Yeah, I was going to add to that. Do you think it's possible that, I mean, specifically very broad-based sanctions rather than targeted sanctions? With with these broad-based sanctions, I think in some ways they can actually um, maybe pardon support um, for countries being targeted. Yeah, within it, because, you know, Iraqis sort of... <sighs> They didn't really blame Saddam for it. They kind of didn't like Saddam, but that didn't get them anywhere because uh, he wasn't planning to stand for election, you know. Um, but they also blamed the U.S. and everybody else for sanctions. They would say, well, you know, we're the ones who are being hit. Even the Kurds, who were a very anti-Saddam, would say, well, we're being hit by these sanctions too. Um, you know, so it's the bluntest of instruments. It's a collective punishment. It really doesn't bring home the bacon, you know. And it does, you know, it has a boomerang effect. Now, Iraq didn't have a boomerang effect, really, uh, because it was too small. But if it's Russia and it also, um, uh, you know, Ukraine has difficulty ex make, exporting. So, you know, this is really sort of, uh, uh, as I said, a boomerang. Uh, you know, it's, it's just like launching a torpedo that sort of turns around and hits you. Uh, and it's... Uh, but somehow it's sort of it's not being questioned in a way I think it should have been. And this is not to say that you know support shouldn't have been given to the Ukrainians, but you know I think it, that should have been in the form of arms, is in the form of arms, and they should have gone light on this sort of economic embargo, uh, which always had a bad effect. You know, in some ways, um, to my mind, the, the Ukraine war looked more and more like the First World War. You know. People sort of tumble into it, and then they can't figure out how to get out of it. And then so many people are being killed and wounded, but they feel we ought to get something out of this. You know, at that time there was a great sort of embargo on Germany, um, which tried to hit back by with submarine warfare and so forth. Uh, and the embargo continued even after the war was over. It caused great bitterness in Germany, and it was one of the things that Hitler used and the uh, German nationalists used to. Um, 
uh, to condemn uh, to condemn the Allies, say, look, this was a, a war based on the general population, and they continued it even after the after the military uh, operations had ceased. You know, so I'm very sort of dubious about uh, uh, economic sanctions being used as a main instrument. So I'm curious. Uh, one thing that you've talked about in some of your recent articles on this is the way in which uh, you know we have Mark Milley. Uh, is chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, basically saying, you know, maybe it's time for diplomacy, uh, while the Biden administration and some of his senior officials oppose it. Uh, what do you make of that dynamic? Why do you think that's happening? And do you think it means anything? I think it does. I mean, you know, this chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff saying it's time for diplomacy is quite a sort of significant thing. Maybe soldiers have a better sense than civilians that wars go both ways, you know. Um, maybe, uh, and that, you know, Ukraine is doing well now, but, you know, every war, I have covered a lot of, fought a lot of wars and, uh, in my career as a, a journalist. And again and again, people who thought they'd won wars turned out not to have won wars. You know, I remember 2001, the U.S. thought it had won the war in, uh, against the Taliban in Afghanistan, you know, who's ruling in Kabul today. You know, they thought, um, They'd won the war in Iraq and, you know, that uh, everything was going to be fine in uh, 2003. Uh, you know, so again and again this happens. Uh, you know, and Israeli, I remember one of the first invasions I covered, Israel invading uh, Lebanon in 1982, thought it was going to be easy, you know. After a few years, you know, returning Israeli soldiers going back to Israel would sort of throw themselves down and kiss the ground. They were so glad to get out of Lebanon. You know, so... Well, I think soldiers maybe appreciate this better. I think it is maybe has some significance because remember it wasn't so long ago, a few weeks ago. I think thirty progressives in the uh, uh, um, in Congress signed a letter uh, calling it was rather a mild letter calling for diplomacy, and they had to sort of they're forced to withdraw it after twenty four hours under a hail of abuse, um, and. Of sort of giving in to Putin, actually, it just said you know we we'll support Ukraine, but maybe diplomacy is a good idea. Uh, and they got, but you know, since then, once you have Millet uh, saying this, maybe a little bit more space has opened up for diplomacy. But again, I mean, that isn't that isn't easy because it's you know what are Russian war aims and what would they accept? What are Ukrainian war aims and what would they accept? Uh, from the Ukrainian point of view, maybe if they stop fighting, uh, then sort of support, military support for them, uh, political support for them will begin to ebb. I mean, whatever the West European leaders are saying, they kind of know the damage this has done to them economically and if you're sort of running for election politically. So, um, so the Ukrainians would wonder, you know, if we reach an agreement with Russia, how long would it you know, would it be a ceasefire? How long would it last? And so forth. Um, so I think it's difficult to do. But maybe I think there are, the, you know, the arrows don't all point in the same way. I think, as I said at the beginning, there's a natural tendency for war to escalate and spread. Uh, well, because people try new strategies and new tactics against each other. Uh, but maybe also particularly in the U.S., there's um, a greater feeling that uh, this might be the moment to push diplomacy. It might be the moment to 
push uh, the state to the Ukrainians, well, you know, quit while you're ahead or try to quit while you're ahead. Uh, of course, the Russians may think exactly the opposite. Why should we, we can't quit while they're ahead? ahead. Um, so, uh, but overall, the longer wars go on, you know, just the more and more difficult it gets to, uh, to bring them to a stop. It's interesting. You've been asking the question, what is Russia fighting for today? Um, and, you know, I do wonder, I mean, has Putin's goals changed at all, his aims with regards to this war? Because I think he may have thought he'd go into this and it would be uh, a lot easier than it's been on Russia. So do you think he's uh, maybe reassessing things? Um, do you think it's more about him not getting embarrassed now than it is um, about taking more land? I think it's, um, I think they don't quite know what to do, you know, because uh, they they want to conquer Ukraine, as, as we said earlier, and they failed to do so. They haven't really had a policy since. They sort of, they said, you know, we wanted to defend Russian speakers against oppression um, by a Nazi-led government or, uh, you know, but that was always propaganda. It was always nonsense. Um then you know they've declared parts of eastern Ukraine are now part of Russian territory, but they've just lost part, the parts of that uh, territory. Um, they also, you know, there's something rather strange about you know uh, Russian operations. At the beginning, they failed to conquer Ukraine. Then you'd think they might try and raise that game, but no, it remains a special military operation. It's only quite recently they've started. Uh, conscripting troops, even that seems shambolic. You know, from the beginning, Ukraine was conscripting men of military age, and men of military age could not leave the country. Uh, Russia does that months later, and doesn't, you know, is allowing uh, men of military age to leave the country. You know, as you've seen, uh, you know, film, television of, uh, you know, queues of people on the Georgian border of men trying to get out to avoid the avoid the draft. You know, but most countries can see that coming as soon as you impose conscription, uh, almost automatically. What you do is you uh, stop people of uh, men of military age leaving the country. So they do, you know, rather obvious things they don't they haven't done. So there's a feeling of sort of shambles. Um, but it's still, it's you know, it's a powerful country, and uh, you see that with, uh, you know, this. Uh, drone and missile war aimed at the Ukrainian uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, and that's happening from, you know, Kharkiv in the east and uh, Kiev and uh, Lviv and Dnipro all over the country. It's not that difficult to do. You know, most countries depend on 20 or 30 power stations. The Russians don't seem to be hitting the nuclear power stations, but they're hitting the, uh, you know, the um, um, cables, uh, the high voltage cables, and they're hitting the uh, substations that uh, uh, that actually sort of distribute the power and you can basically turn you know you can turn a country back to the sort of the 19th century by doing that um, it doesn't mean Ukrainians will surrender but it means that uh, you know the country will be will be devastated no factory will work um, I saw one of the uh, the heads of the uh, uh, Ukrainian electricity company was saying people should leave the country to reduce the uh, the amount of consumption of electricity. They don't seem to be doing that on mass at the moment, but I guess they might at some point. This doesn't mean they're going to throw out their hands and surrender. It just means that what are the Ukrainians going to do? They'll probably try and think of something to do to the Russians in a counterblow. You know, 
Um, and, uh, you know, it's um, maybe they can do the same to Russia. I don't know. But uh, technically, it's perfectly feasible. So I just had um, two more things I wanted to briefly cover. With regards to the uh, situation with giving arms to Ukraine, uh, I've seen a, a few reports that were coming out, I guess I would say in you know April and August, in between those months, uh, saying that there's issues with you know the Pentagon being able to track uh, these Ukraine-bound weapons. Um, you know, I think at one point someone said the U.S. weapons to Ukraine are like a, a big black hole. Do you think that's a, a legitimate issue or a legitimate concern, or do you think some people have made too much out of it? I don't make too much out of it. You know, if you people you are supplying weapons, somebody will think you get a hold of them. You know, you make some money. Uh, I mean, I remember in Iraq during the, I mean, at uh, 2014, the Germans supplied a lot of. Uh, weapons to the Kurds in the north, and uh, Iraqis, who all tend to be uh, armed, I mean, ordinary Iraqis, and the word spread that there was this very good new type of German light machine gun. So, you know, that started turning up in the arms markets in Baghdad, because people would pay a lot of money for it. So, uh, you know, you, you'll have, that's about you're bound to have that, but I don't think it's, uh, uh, I don't think it's that serious. It's something more serious and worse things are happening than that. So before we close out, I, I guess, where do you see the conflict going forward? And, and I guess, what's the U.S. role in all of this? I mean, where where, where do you see everything heading right now at the, at the moment? I don't I don't want to force you to do any uh, soothsaying, but I guess you, you've been through so many wars and reporting on these wars. I just wonder where you see this headed. I don't have a set opinion. I, I just don't see the, you know, the ingredients... Maybe there are rather more ingredients for diplomacy, some agreement now than there were a month ago. But there are also other ingredients for the war to spread. You know, then this might happen by uh, by intent. You know, lots of people escalate because they want to win the war, or it might happen by accident. You know, it's uh, we had the missiles which um, turned out to be Ukrainian missiles, which uh, anti-aircraft missiles, which landed just over the border in uh, Poland and. Um, killed two people, uh, you know. But as soon as news of that reached Bali, where all these so world leaders were meeting, you know, they were all hopping out of bed in the middle of the night, and burning each other up, and so forth, because you know two missiles land in a, a village in eastern Poland. Um, so you can see how sort of easily that could happen. Um, nuclear weapons, same thing. You know, it's. Uh, um, um, Putin does some nuclear saber rattling, you know. But when you rattle sabers, you know, and you don't do anything, people don't believe you. So you have to rattle harder and make the threat more and more explicit, you know. And there's always danger that something will go wrong. Uh, but for the moment, you know, that's not happening. But, you know, what we are seeing is the Ukrainian army advancing. We're seeing the uh, Ukraine infrastructure, electricity and water being destroyed. Um so both sides, I think, probably think they've got something to gain on the battlefield. And it's difficult to see how the ingredients come together at the moment uh, to bring about a peace, certainly not a lasting peace. I also wanted to ask, um, just in, in, in your reporting on these issues, you mentioned uh, this issue that people argue about. They argue about whether it's propaganda or not, the this whole issue of things like Nazis in Ukraine or, or far-right elements in Ukraine. How do you separate what's propaganda from what's not propaganda when it comes to these conflicts, just in your experience? You just have to sort of read a lot, you know. 
And yeah, I mean, there are sort of, you know, from West Ukraine, there have always been sort of extreme nationalist fascist organizations, you know, but th this is not actually the Ukraine government, you know. Um, and so uh, it's always a problem in war uh, because, you know, every war has war propaganda. Uh, and uh, the and, and that sort of escalated, you know, it's sort of uh, people release, they don't necessarily lie, but, but they release selective facts. And I think I think that journalists are not very good at sort of uh, emphasizing how dubious some of this stuff is, or just not, you know, certain things they don't sort of cover properly, like they've been covering the war on the ground, but it's only now they're beginning to sort of cover this war on the infrastructure. Um, because it's not, you know, it's not stuff that with, you know, big things going bang and so forth and soldiers rushing about. It's kind of exciting. It makes good television, you know. The other stuff, because nobody's, it's unlikely Ukrainians will let you sort of see exactly how badly their, uh, uh, you know, their infrastructure is being hit. It's not so exciting, but you know that uh, that's you know part of some sort of nitty gritty war. Um, so I think that uh, uh, governments have got slightly better at sort of war propaganda, and I think journalism, the media, has got sort of got worse at sieving out the propaganda from what's uh, from what's happening, uh, and explain again and again. You see, sort of. People of, um, uh, uh, you know, a senior. I was looking at a paper this morning in, in Britain. A senior Ukrainian government official is saying, uh, you know, that uh, Putin's in a really bad way. This is happening in the Kremlin. You know, well, how does he know? You know, and of course he's going to say bad things about Putin. It might be perfectly correct, but you know, you simple things like you know, citing partisan sources as if they were objective seems to be much more prevalent than it used to be. I know this is uh, slightly off topic, but I, I saw you mentioned it in, in your uh, latest article. Um, I guess I wanted to delve into just briefly here uh, the last few weeks and what is what it has meant for uh, sort of these right-wing populist nationalist candidates. We've saw uh, Boris Johnson sort of filled with his bid for a comeback. Uh, Bolsonaro's out. Uh, Donald Trump is is really in a civil war with Republicans now. Uh, what do you make of all that and what it entails? And also, uh, if we yeah, could, uh, Netanyahu's back is, victory. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, Netanyahu, well, it sort of, you know, it normalizes the extreme right in Israel. You know, it's kind of bad news. I mean, that's been kind of happening from since 1996. So Netanyahu was first elected prime minister. But, you know, these this has normalized very right-wing people who are demonized Israeli Arabs. Uh, and um, generally are, you know, very extreme. And Netanyahu has sort of normalized them and brought them into government. Um, and there isn't, you know, the Labour Party, which used to be 1995, I remember I was in Israel, based in Jerusalem, and, uh, you know, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the Prime Minister, the architect of the, you know, the Oslo Accords and so forth, uh, was, uh, was shot in the back, you know, by... By um, a guy backed by the settlers, you know, sort of, uh, and that Netanyahu didn't come in immediately, but he came in after uh, Shimon Peres. 
that really opened the door to uh, Netanyahu. And it's been sort of every, again and again, Israeli government's been more and more to the right. Uh, and um, uh, Netanyahu, you know, he's very much the prototype, a stereotype, prototype, if you like, of these sort of populist nationalist um, leaders, uh, you know, who emphasize sort of ethnic differences, um, fire up people's fears of other communities, uh, very good at handling the media, uh, all the sort of things that people say about Trump or Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro were true first of uh, Netanyahu. And he was good at it then and he's good at it now. But, um, you know, I'm real glad quick, that, not to interrupt, but sorry. why do you think it's receding when it comes to Brazil, uh, the US, but in Israel, we see things going farther to the right? Don't really, a lot of that's to do with Netanyahu's um, popular, uh, you know, popularity. You know, it's also true that, uh, you know, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, you have uh, seven million, uh, about seven million Israeli Jews and seven million Palestinians, you know, sort of locked together in a sort of sterile conflict. I mean, with the uh, Palestinians obviously getting the worst of it, you know, it's sort of, it's a, a sort of more, it's a deeper, more sort of uh, all-absorbing dispute, maybe more than, uh, you know, the sort of issues which um, populists elsewhere have raised. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, elsewhere it's rather... Um, it's encouraging in a way. Um, yeah, but Johnson here, Boris Johnson, sort of briefly reemerged, but uh, you know, fell back again. Um, Trump, uh, uh, you know, we've yet to see, but um, and we'll see also in Israel. You know, things are static, uh, but will there be a, another intifada? You know, is the will the, the pressure just get so great that um, you know that uh, violence will begin to explode? Uh, you know, we had uh, some bombs in Jerusalem, was it yesterday, and so forth. So things are heating up there. It doesn't necessarily mean there will be an explosion, but certainly we're getting closer to it. Last thing I'll let you go after this is um, with regards to Netanyahu and you know the far right uh, sort of gaining ground in Israel. Do you think there's any chance that this will affect Israel's relations with the U.S. or even Britain, or do you see that relationship or those relationships as staying the same? Well, I wish it did, you know, because I think Israeli voters don't take seriously what the U.S. says. You know, I remember 1992 when that was, uh, I think Rabin got in then, you know, it's because um, you know, Bush Sr. and was uh, was pretty tough with them, you know, that uh, they couldn't get a, a loan guarantee Um um, without doing what the without uh, negotiating with the Palestinians, which what the U.S. wanted, but Biden has suddenly sort of really okayed everything they wanted. And while there've been a few sort of uh, sort of few negative little uh, things that the Israelis know that uh, and the uh, voters uh, who put in uh, Netanyahu with a strong majority uh, know that the U.S. hasn't done the thing, isn't going to do anything. What do you hope that listeners get out of the conversation we've had uh, for the past, I guess, half hour? Is, is there anything you really want them to stick on? I think that people, and I think a lot of people sort of feel this instinctively, 
shouldn't be over impressed by all this what i think of a sort of hurrah hurrah type uh, news reporting from ukraine you know you can sort of guys on the front line saying ukraine sort of advance you know yeah they are winning victories but you, you have to look at wars as a whole you know and understand you know the longer they go on the more devastating they become you know and that they naturally each side will think of something pretty horrible to do to the other side and that wars have a natural tendency to escalate. Um, I think people sort of need to sort of think hard about that. Um, and um, and look at this sort of war in the war in the round. Wars are real sort of complicated businesses, you know. There are always lots of sides to them. And people usually, because of government propaganda, only see one side. And they should remember previous wars, you know, where you know, Afg Afghanistan, the U.S. absolutely believing it wiped the floor with the uh, Taliban, their ancient history and so forth didn't happen. Iraq, mission accomplished, etc. wasn't accomplished, you know. The war to get rid of Gaddafi in Libya, yeah, got rid of Gaddafi and what's happened, uh, our country is completely devastated. It was still in a state of civil war. Um, it you sounds know, like it there's a lot of parallels between uh, the, the wars in the Middle East, the forever wars there, and what's happening between Ukraine and Russia right now. Sure, yeah, I think I think there are. I, I think people, you know, I think it's, I've, I've sort of said this from the beginning, that it had all this sort of signs of becoming another forever war. Uh, and, um, you know, you never know. Maybe, you know, something happens to Putin tomorrow or something. But it's difficult. The likelihood is that it won't. The likelihood is it will just go on and on, like we've seen all these Middle East wars. You know, two thousand and fifteen, Yemen. We didn't mention. You know, Saudi Arabia invaded Yemen. I think it was. They called our operation "Decisive Storm." You know, thought it'd be over in a few weeks. You know, uh, years later, they're still there. You know, country's been devastated. Is it just um, not to interrupt you? But is it just a matter of? It seems like when a country invades another country that, you know, it's, it sounds like to me that, that Yemen has a lot more to lose. Uh, Yemenis have a lot more to lose. Uh, Ukrainians have a lot more to lose. Do you think that plays a factor in the war? Well, you know, people fight it out, you know, and um, the, I don't, they've got, the Ukrainians have got a lot to lose, you know, but maybe they've got, they've got feel, you know, they feel they've got no choice. Um, and it could be difficult, difficult to bring this war to an end. But I think this sort of thought that, you know, let's go on till, you know, Putin falls and we completely defeated the Russians, you know, you know, it's pretty unlikely. I think that you know, people are beginning to grasp that in the last sort of few weeks and the and the sort of more space for sort of thinking about this. And the, the Biden administration doesn't seem so quite so uh, determined to play down the idea of negotiations that it was about a month ago. I know at the end here, you also wanted to briefly touch upon Trump and the Forever Wars, his relationship to the Forever Wars and the foreign policy establishment. Well, I, uh, I kept pointing out at the time that Trump actually didn't start any wars in the Middle East. You know, I think Trump is a very sort of weird guy, but I think he may have just taken on board that these wars were a terrible mess. He had great difficulty sort of persuading these sort of foreign policy established in Washington that that was true, good, great difficulty persuading, you know, the U.S. Army, the Pentagon, that um, that was true. And, you know, his withdrawals were very messy. 
But, you know, he did have an instinct that you had to sort of bring these forever wars to an end. Um, and um, I think because people are so sort of condemnatory of Trump, they don't quite take that on board, uh, that he did have something there, uh, which a lot of people... Uh, other people, maybe more sophisticated about foreign policy, didn't uh, didn't grasp. Well, Patrick Coburn, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. It's always insightful to speak with you. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? I know Counterpunch carries a lot of your articles. Are there any other outlets they? Yeah, should... they come. They come. I mean, they, they originally appear in the uh, I newspaper in Britain. Uh, Counterpunch republishes them, um, and you know, it's easy enough to. Uh, you know, paywalls are going up all over Europe and uh, so forth. So yeah, they can access my stuff on uh, in the I newspaper. Some of which is now behind paywalls, or they can go to Counterpunch and read it there. Thank you again, Patrick Coburn, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. Next up, we're speaking with Professor Jacob S. Dorman, author of Chosen People. The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. Black Israelism has been in the news as of late due to the controversy surrounding NBA basketball player Kyrie Irving tweeting a link to a black Israelite documentary peddling anti-Semitism. Professor Dorman will give his views on that, as well as the anti-Semitic allegations against Kanye West, the history of Black Israelism, its relationship to movements like Freemasonry and Rastafarianism, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Professor Jacob S. Dorman, author of Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really interested in speaking with, uh, Jacob S. Dorman, author of the recent book, The Princess and the Prophet, The Secret History of Magic, Race, and Black Muslims in America, as well as the book we'll be talking a little bit about in this conversation. Uh, I believe it's from 2016, Chosen People, The Rise of American Black Israelite Religions. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is uh, we're hearing a lot about uh, Black Israelite religion now um, in light of this controversy with, uh, I guess, Kyrie Irving, the basketball player, uh, sharing, I guess, a tweet. Um, in a tweet, he shared a, a documentary that I guess is connected to Black Hebrew Israelite beliefs uh, that has been called anti-Semitic. Uh, but I feel like a lot of people may not even know uh, what b Black Israelite religions are. So before we get into that controversy, maybe you could talk a little bit about what this religion is and uh, its origins. Sure. So the basic tenets of Black Israelism is that the ancient Israelites were Black, and Black people, contemporary Black people, are their um, descendants. Um, so it's really more of a theory of history than a religion per se, although it comes in different religious packaging. So it began actually as a Christian movement 
um, with the Holiness Church in the 1890s in places like Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas, uh, Tennessee as well. So um, in these areas, uh, there was a lot of religious fervor. Um, and in in the later half of the 19th century, this movement called Holiness um, took on. And these people became famous as the Holy Rollers um, because sometimes they would have ecstatic um, religious uh uh, ecstasies and actually roll on the ground. It it led in 1906 to the Pentecostal movement um, and a lot of churches that were called Holiness Pentecostal. So uh, these churches started to ask themselves, well, uh, what kind of what would Jesus do? Uh, quite literally, because Jesus was a Jew, and so um, what does the Hebrew Bible have to teach us about the practices? Um, that he would have um, kept. And so a number of holiness churches at the end of the 19th century started doing things like avoiding pork, uh, keeping uh, the Sabbath on the seventh day on, on Saturday instead of on Sunday, um, foot washing, because that was a biblical custom. And, and so um, these some the groups like Seventh Day Adventists were doing very similar things. They started to reverse engineer Judaism from the Hebrew Bible. Um, so the first wave of Black Israelite movements started in 1891, 1893, um, with groups like the Church of God and Saints of Christ, which uh, started in uh, Kansas. That's uh, William Texas. Saunders Crowdy. William right? Saunders Crowdy. Yeah, he was the the prophet. Um, and and uh, another element that has to be added in addition to holiness Christianity is Freemasonry, that a lot of these um, first founders of, of Israelite churches were Masons themselves. And Freemasonry has a whole um, kind of uh, secret teachings about history that are very much center on King Solomon and the building of the temple in Jerusalem, King Solomon's uh, temple. Um, so these, uh, and then the other stream that's really important, um, is the Anglo-Israelite movement. So there were, uh, English people in England, uh, who started to say that the different nations of Europe were descended from the ancient Israelites. And this really goes back to, um, the first, first European explorations of the world, um, for religious people that believe that the Bible was a literal um, map of the world and of um, its history, um, one of the most kind of common um, ideas when when Europeans encountered um, foreign peoples was that they were descended from the lost tribes of Israel who had been dispersed um, at, during the Babylonian uh, uh, exile. So anyway, you have these streams, holiness, Freemasonry, um, and uh, and the lost tribes of Israel um, teaching. And so that coalesces among a couple African-American churches as the teaching that the ancient Israelites were black and black people were their descendants. So that's kind of the first wave. The second wave happens um, in especially in Harlem, but also Philadelphia and some other um, northeastern cities. 
Um, and that wave actually started um, practicing ver varieties of Judaism and calling themselves Jews. Um, and so the, the foremost uh, founder of those movements was named Rabbi Wentworth Arthur Matthew. Um, Matthew was from uh, Nevis St. Kitts from the Caribbean, and he teamed up with a number of people, both West Indian immigrants in um, Harlem and also some African-Americans. And they they formed synagogues and they had Torahs um, and they had they practiced um, Jewish rituals and and the descendants of these communities still do. So you had a second wave um, from the 20s to the 50s and 60s that were practicing really Judaic forms of, of um, Black Israelism. You also have some interesting offshoots in terms of the Black Muslims because many Black Muslim sects were formed in 1925 and 1930, and they also believed that the ancient Israelites were Black. And then um, kind of the most famous Israelite group is probably Rastafarians. So anyone who listens to reggae music knows that there's a lot about the the Israelites within reggae music because it's so important to um, Rastafarian tradition. And the founder of the Rastafarians was named Leonard Percival Howell, and he actually spent time in Harlem in the 1920s. So he knew about Black uh, Isra Hebrew Israelites from his time in Harlem um, in, in, in the 20s. So you have uh, Christian groups, Jewish groups, and Muslim groups um, that all believe in this. And then the last wave is the Black nationalist and Black power uh, groups that come about in the Black power era from kind of the long 1960s, from 1955 till 1975, basically. Um, and those groups kind of turned away from Judaism and didn't call themselves or think of themselves as Jews. Instead, they started to prefer the term Israelite, um, which has now become the most common term. Um, and it's also uh, a lot less specific than calling somebody a, a Jew or somebody calling themselves a Jew. Um, so those are the main, the main kind of eras and flavors. Um, the big difference of what we're seeing now is that groups are, are spreading on the internet or spreading at least the idea, if not the group. Um, and that's how people like Kanye and Kyrie and uh, have come into uh, accepting at least some element of Black Israelism. How should we understand um, Black Hebrew Israelite, uh, the, the movement, the Black Israelite movement in, in the context of issues around culture and racism and ethnicity. Um, what's what's the importance of understanding uh, the, the context behind the yeah. movement? Well, I, I titled my book Chosen People um, because I think that's really the heart of what they're saying. Um, the context, the larger context, of course, is that these movements arose at you know, during the heart of Jim Crow segregation and racism and lynching. Um, the early 1890s, when these groups were being formed, were also the high point of lynching in this country. Um, so their, their efforts very, I think, directly uh, linked to anti-racism. So racism was saying Black people are not... Um, uh, do not deserve their the the racists are saying that black people are uh, inferior 
and even subhuman. And they come around and say, no, we're not. Not only are we not inferior, we are the people of the book. We are the people that you're, um, that are central to uh, Judaism and Christianity, um, to the, the core of so-called Western civilization. So they're saying um, they're effectively ant- uh, answering racism. And I think that that's really um the heart of the critique. The other part of the critique, the Black Israelite critique, is to say uh, we've been lied to um, when when we've been called Negro or when we've been told that we're inferior, or subhuman. And I think that's um, that's a very powerful critique because Black people, you know, were lied to and continue to be lied to. I mean, racism is basically a lie. Um, that is being pushed on on the world and on black people and reproduced by, um, you know, innumerable both individuals and structural forms of racism. So um, it's a very powerful critique. It's also a critique of traditional um, Christianity by saying, okay, you're practicing a religion that was associated with slaveholders, that is all about pie in the sky and, and pushing um rewards into the afterlife and um and so even if uh even if you have christian israelites that are critiquing non-israelite christians it's still a very powerful critique and and it finds a lot of um resonance and audience members and that's what we're seeing now with the kind of advent of these israelite youtube channels and and uh and celebrities uh, latching on to it. Out of curiosity, with regards to uh, Kyrie Irving specifically, what's your take on what has transpired um, with that and with this documentary that that has you know become really popular, I guess, on YouTube and, and Amazon? Yeah. Hebrews to uh, Negroes, I believe, is the title. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on this controversy? Well, my take on that film, I I actually bought it and I bought the book as well. And I felt like I have an obligation to 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 uh, expose myself to it. My take on the film is that it was made by and for stoned people. Um, when you actually see it, you'll see it's like, it's all over the place. There's two minutes on this and then five minutes of uh, a trailer for an imaginary movie that hasn't been made. And then there's um, some impressive computer graphics. Um, so the whole thing, really is like more about shock and awe than it is about like creating a, uh, it creates an argument, but it doesn't really do historical research or, um, it it's claims, a very long documentary too. I think it's like it's three very and a half long. hours. It's very long. It's like, yeah, three hours. Um, so, I mean, my take on it is that I, I don't think Kyrie is anti-Semitic based on his subsequent comments and also just checking out his his public profile and Instagram and Twitter. I think what he said about himself is that he kind of he's an uh he believes in an omni view of of religion and spirituality and which is a very common thing. Um some people call it shopping cart religion because people t- take many different things off the shelf and and find connection with many different um, forms of of religion. Um, so I think he is a, the fancy word is to say he's a bricoleur that's taking pieces and, and creating a bricolage or like a collage of different ideas that are meaningful to him. So I think he 
either didn't watch very closely uh, or was just not sensitized to the fact that, you know, someone who's quoting Henry Ford, who's like the most famous anti-Semite in American history or Hitler, you know, as historical authorities um, probably isn't somebody who deserves to be, um, you know, uh, amplified in the culture. And then when he was questioned about it, I think he just got his back up and got defensive um, because he subsequently has come around and and said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not anti-Semitic. Um, but I think, you know, I think this is, it is such a powerful critique because racism is still with us. And, and as long as there's racism, there's going to be interest. You know, if, if somebody says you've been lied to your whole life about, about the identity of, of the Israelites, um, that's going to be a, a very compelling critique if it comes from a member of your community or somebody who who you um, respect. Um, so that's my take on on Kyrie. I think Kanye is an anti-Semite. <laughs> I think he made that pretty clear uh, uh, in his comments and subsequent comments that he believes that there's a, a vast conspiracy of the Jews. I think Dave Chappelle had it right when he said there's two words you should never put into the same sentence, which is the and Jews. Um, but you can say that about any you know group. If you say the anybody uh, has, are part of a vast conspiracy, no matter who you're putting into that, that's um, going to be conspiratorial and and uh, and racist um, uh, at the same time. Uh, but obviously, there's it's not. So as innocent as all that, because Jews have been, you know, uh, vilified and stereotyped and and made into um, the uh, the subjects of different conspiracy theories for thousands of years. Um, So it's really unfortunate that uh, anti-Semitism is uh, is making a comeback. I wanted to ask, too, about Kyrie Irving. He's done a lot of work and said things in regards to anti-racism in the past, right? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I haven't looked into his past um, uh, statements about anti-Semitism. I know this time he came out and said very clearly that he didn't mean any offense and didn't, you know, realize that he was um, tweeting, forwarding something that contained a lot of anti-Semitism. But, um, you know, he just he just retweeted. He just tweeted a link. He didn't actually make an anti-Semitic statement the way that Kanye did. Um, and Kanye made, you know, several statements, but, um, the other issue with Kanye, I think is just mental illness. I mean, he's, it's been very clear that he suffers um, from bipolar. He's, he said it, and there's a number of things, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have said, and I tend to agree that it's somewhat disturbing that there wasn't more of a controversy when Kanye said that, um, slavery was a choice that 400 years of slavery was a choice. I mean, that is so racist. Like, why did he get to keep his um, a, a sneaker deal with Adidas um, when he said that? Like, that, to me, um, was worthy of somebody being, you know, losing um, endorsement deals. Um, so that's disturbing. I also think that the 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 contemporary Israelite uh, version of African history is deeply racist because it's saying basically we don't need to study. Um, it's saying that uh, 
that you can just ignore all the, you know, hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of pages of uh, African history that has been written, you know, in the last 50 years alone, it, like uh, Africa is no longer the dark continent that doesn't have a history um, the way Hegel said that it was. I mean, there's, we're, we're now at the tail end of about a hundred years of historical writing about Africa. We know a lot about African history and languages and um, it's really totally problematic um, to to say that history, African history, is a kind of vacuum that anybody can just um, place, uh, you know, a few lines of the Bible over. Um, the other thing about the 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 origin story about uh, Israelites going to West Africa is that it was actually created uh, mostly by a white Christian missionary named Joseph J. Williams. Um, who started practicing, basically applying the Anglo-Israelite theory to West Africa and and taking words that sounded the same and saying that's where, you know, that's because uh, there, there was a, a Hebraic uh, influence on West Africa. It's historically really, um, there's, there's, there's not uh, good historical evidence um, for that. So I think that that also has to be, um, part of the conversation that it's it's deeply racist to say that slavery was a choice. And I think it's also racist to say that Africa uh, doesn't have a history that deserves to be um, studied um, carefully um, instead of just saying, well, we can take um, this one story from the Hebrew Bible and then replace all of African history with that one story. Yeah, I was going to say what I meant about Kyrie. I, I had seen a tweet that you uh, wrote referencing uh, Maya Angelou, uh, and you you write um, Maya Angelou was right. There is uh, only one race; it's called the human race. And then you wrote, "Why is no one talking about Kyrie Irving's anti-racist tweets?" So that that yeah. I guess I was just referencing oh, that yeah. earlier. Yeah, yeah, he does have a whole history of of making anti-racist um, statements. Um, I, I can say that. So I so to. to to speak a little bit more about the Kyrie situation, I think he didn't quite, I don't know how much of this three hour movie he had watched. Um, I don't think he was endorsing its anti-Semitism when he said that there was, uh, that it was worth checking out. I think there's, you know, there's controversial books all the time. I can think of a few. Um, and just because you, you got something out of the, that book doesn't mean that you endorse the whole book. I mean, think about the Bible itself. I mean, it says that anyone who commits adultery or works on the Sabbath needs to be stoned to death or anyone who mixes cotton and flax in their clothing, they also have to be stoned to death. But there's no one, there's not a single person alive today who believes that that should be interpreted literally. Um, there's, there's always bad things in any religion or things that have to be, that demand to be interpreted um, for um, the contemporary day. Um, and so I think the emphasis on anti-Semitism among black Israelites, uh, the way that that has been become what they've been known for is, is really unfortunate. I, I don't think that that um, characterizes all black Israelites. I don't think it characterizes the entire culture or the entire, you know, religion. It hasn't characterized how I've been received among black Israelites, which has been, you know, 
with a lot of kindness and and openness. Um, so I think it's one of those things that people know is controversial. And so if you make an anti-Semitic statement, you're going to get a lot of attention and sell a lot of books. So I think that's kind of also what's driving um, this is just sensationalism. That's something I wanted to pinpoint on. Actually, that was the next uh, thing I was going to ask you about, which is uh, maybe misperceptions people have about uh, Black Israelites, because you know, even the ADL has said they've been very clear to say some Black Israelites are anti-Semitic, and yeah. they've been very clear to say that's not necessarily representative of everyone who is. So, do you think that's the biggest misconception people have about Black Israelites? Is that you know this is just all militant anti-Semites? Um, and and how do you think uh, we can get past those misconceptions? Um, well, you could always buy my book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, or or John Jackson has a great book on Black Israelites called Thin Description. Um, there's, I mean, the biggest encyclopedia of Black Israelites is is called Black Judaism by James Landing. So there there is history written about this um, and about these people and these faiths. Uh, it's just the the version of Black Israelites that makes it into a lot of conversations is this kind of um, extremist, uh, anti-Semitic um, version, but that's not actually a version that that attracts a lot of people. Like it's hard to create an identity that's entirely a negative identity um, that's uh, in opposition. Not, not to interrupt you, but do you think part of it's that maybe these most militant elements are the loudest, so to speak? I think they're amplified. I mean, and one thing is that they're taking their measure. There's a group called One West um, whose members dress up uh, in colorful um, garb, kind of like, um, you know, turbans and tunics that are supposed to be biblical. Um, and then they they debate and and shout at people on on street corners in especially New York City. I, so I they, was going to say, um, that's how I first became introduced to this yeah, subject was seeing yeah. the videos of yelling so, at white women and whatnot. Yeah, they, they, but it's kind of, you know, that's, um, that is attractive for a number of uh, young men, mostly. It's not very attractive for other populations, but it gets a lot of attention because they're in the public sphere. Um, but that's, uh, that's just one offshoot of um, Black Israelism. It's not the majority out offshoot. Um, so I think the biggest thing that people don't understand is that we're really talking about a theory of history more than a religion, that it's had different religious packages and continues to have. Um, and then the other thing that's, I think, really fascinating is that these groups are connected. Like you can draw connections between the Rastafarians and the Black Jews um, they were also connected through Ethiopia because a number of Black Jews went to Ethiopia in 1930. Uh, and when the Italo-Ethiopian War happened in 1935, uh, many of those left. And some of those people that left were missionaries from Jamaica who brought back the Israelite teaching and the kind of centrality of Rastafari, Makonan or Haile Selassie. Um uh, to Jamaica. So there are these international circuits. Uh, another thing is that uh, a number of the people involved, especially in the, the second wave or mid-century 
um, movements were West Indians. So it's it's a very cosmopolitan movement of people um, from abroad and people who go abroad and people who circulate around the globe um, and spreading these these um, these ideas. Um, they're also very similar to to Black Muslims. Um, what I think a lot of people don't recognize is that in the 1920s, um, both people that called themselves Black Jews and people that called themselves Black Muslims had a lot in common in terms of um, if you take off the exterior wrappers, what they were believing in and practicing. I know you mentioned that we should view this as a theory of history. What do you say to people that just would say, well, no, this is this is all just revisionism, what uh, Black Israelites are doing. It's just historical revisionism, and we don't have to pay any attention to it because of that. Like, how, how do you respond to people that don't think this should be studied or that, you know, sort of discard it? Well, I think what this is, is a great example of polyculturalism. And that is the idea that unlike multiculturalism tried to, was a very neoconservative ideology of saying, um, you know, we're going to talk about the great American mosaic and it's a salad bowl. It's not a melting pot and everybody has their, you know, flavor in the salad of America. Um, and so we, it's a really way of thinking about hyphenation, African-Americans, Jewish Americans, Italian Americans, but you know, the container of America stays and, and we're looking at these different groups and within silos instead of, um, connected, um, polyculturalists, uh, and theorists, including myself say, well, that's really inadequate to describe how cultures form because they, they form laterally from, from borrowing from, from neighbors, from influence of different religious ideas, exactly what you see Kyrie Irving doing, like putting together all these different religious ideas. And that's how religions grow. And that's how communal identities and communal people grow, right? There's no such thing as a pure race. There, it just doesn't exist. And so I think the really potentially subversive element of studying the of what I've done in terms of studying how Black Israelites uh, invent themselves is that um, it suggests that other groups do something very similar, including uh, white Ashkenazi Jews um, who come from Eastern Europe, like my ancestors do. Um, so that, you know, that community has been around since about 800 or 900 A.D., uh, that leaves almost a, you know a century before uh, I mean sorry a millennia before biblical times, um, and despite there the existence of some genetic studies uh, that purport to show that Ashkenazi Jews are directly descended from Middle Easterners, um, that category Middle Eastern is a really big category. So essentially, what I'm saying is that there's no Judaic group uh, uh, that's alive today that can definitely prove that they were, you know, genetically uh, related to the, to the Israelites. And in fact, the foremost um, authority on this is named Shlomo Sand, and he, he makes the argument that already by the time of- He wrote uh, um, Invention of the Jewish People, I believe. Yeah, the yeah. Invention of the Jewish People, and he's an uh, Israeli. And he's saying that already by the time of the the Babylonian captivity and and uh, the Roman dispersion of Jewish uh, communities that those Jews were not genetically related to the ancient Israelites. So essentially, everybody's making it up 
And what we see among black Israelites is that they're making it up starting from a West Indian or sorry, West African uh, point of view. But everybody in every Judaic community at some point is saying, we believe these things. We believe we are these people uh, because we have these traditions that tell us that we are. Um, but I think that all movements um, and all cultures uh, today, as in the past, have grown laterally by being influenced uh, not just by your genetics or your ancestors, but being influenced culturally much more so in the horizontal field instead of the kind of long vertical um, field of uh, centuries. So, you know, I I know like 20 words of Yiddish, which was the language of my ancestors. Um, how much of my ancestors' perspective do I really carry on? I mean, maybe there's a kind of aesthetic sensibility. There's some, you know, uh, humor there's, um, you know, very few religious practices uh, did I even grow up with, and I grew up in a in a religious uh, uh, home, but I don't even speak their language. Um, so I think it's uh, it's a mistake to think that there's uh, any population, Jewish or non-Jewish, that has just simply continued uh, the practices of uh, their ancestral group. So I think that's. I think the most interesting part about Black Israelites, because they came together within the last century or about a century ago, century and a half, um, it's possible to trace the roots of where different ideas and, and individuals are influencing each other and, and building uh, groups. Um, and, and you can do that uh, with a lot more precision than you can do that for, for other Judaic groups. But it does suggest that all groups essentially build themselves polyculturally by borrowing um, and building, uh, I, inventing identities as opposed to simply um, carrying out some kind of um, ancestral destiny. So the last question I was going to ask you, and um, thank you for mentioning, mentioning um. Shlomo Sand, because I, I find his uh, writing very interesting. But the last question I wanted to ask is, you mentioned, you know, talking and and, and dealing with uh, Black Israelites. Uh, maybe you could, just to humanize uh, Black Israelites, uh, because I think, as you said, we sort of get this sensational version um, of them through, you know, the, the sort of amplification of the, the most militant elements, the, the sort of anti-Semitic elements. Maybe you could talk about your experiences, though, with um, Black Israelites that don't fit that sort of mold um, and how welcoming they were to you. Like, what 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 comes to mind when it comes to your personal experiences with them? Um, uh, it's interesting. I went to a conference a number of years ago now, about, uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, it was on... Um, Black Israelites. It was uh, um, put together by one of my teachers, who's Tudor Parfit, who's now at the um, um, Florida International University. Uh, I might be screwing that up, um, but um, he put together this conference, and there were a number of Black Israelites who I've known for a bit of time, including um, Rabbi Capers Founier who is a rabbi of um, a shul in a synagogue in um, Chicago and is also the president of the Israelite Board of Rabbis. And he's somebody who came into the faith through one of these groups, these Black nationalist, Black power groups like One West. Um, but then he's evolved um, to 
in a much more kind of Judaic uh, direction. And he's a rabbi. He's um, a member of the Chicago Board of Rabbis. Um, he's very knowledgeable um, uh, about Judaism and about um, uh, um, Israelite uh, history as well. And my 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 wife, who was then my girlfriend, was with me on this trip. And he and another Israelite kind of took me aside and and they were like, like she's she's special. Like, you know, this one is special. Um, and I was like, uh, you're you're right. Uh, how how'd you know? And and um he said, We're your brothers, you know, and this is somebody who I've met a few times, but I uh, had that kind of um um, connection with. Also, when I first started um, studying these groups, I, I visited them in uh, Demona, uh, the African Hebrew Israelites of Demona, um, and it was just treated with so much um, courtesy and and respect. And somebody did say, uh, "What are you?" And I said, "I'm Jewish." And he said, "You're Jewish, and we're Jews." And so that's you know that's like the essence of what a lot of people object to. Um, among Black Israelite uh, teachings. But, you know, you have to, there, like I said, there's there's good and bad in every community. And I think there's a hell of a lot more racism among white people, including white Jews, than there is um, anti-Semitism among Black people, including Black Israelites. Um, so, you know, no one, you know, he who lives in glass houses, you know, shouldn't throw the first stone. And I've been treated very well. And, and so I, I I judge, I judge any community, especially any faith community based on how they treat people, not on, on what every, you know, line or teaching of the faith um, says, because every faith has, you know, difficult teachings that demand interpretation and and that can be interpreted in a, in a very negative fashion real quickly because uh since you mentioned that this issue of um you know uh anti-black racism in in white communities and even white jewish communities uh i was wondering what do you think about the i guess framing of these incidents with uh kyrie irving and kanye west where I think people are saying, you know, I've, I've seen a few articles say, you know, the black community in America needs to have a reckoning um, with anti-Semitism, which I, I mean, I can understand that. But it also I, I feel like, you know, white America hasn't necessarily had a reckoning with, you know, white anti-Semitism at times and uh, anti-black racism. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah. Well, I think. As in so many cases, when you talk about race and racism in America, you can say James Baldwin said it best because James Baldwin had uh, I'm going to say it's a famous essay, although it's only famous to scholars like myself of black Jewish relations. But James Baldwin has this great essay where he says um, the Negro is anti-Jewish because the Negro is anti-white. And. I think what a lot of my fellow Jews don't want to acknowledge or seriously actually believe um, with the best of intentions, they, they don't acknowledge or believe that that Jews of European background have benefited from white supremacy and 
white privilege, as it's oftentimes called. Um, and I think that's just false. I think that that Jews, um, white Jews, European Jews have benefited and um, from structural racism. Now, there's a lot of very well-meaning white Jews who are you know, anti-racist in their views today as in the past. Um, there's a lot of also, you know, racism among Jews, uh, especially in the past. Um, but even today, I mean, Stephen Miller is the architect of Donald Trump's uh, immigration policy. He's a Jew. Uh, his his uh, Trump's uh, daughter converted to Judaism and married a Jew whose family comes from a, a long, um, a long line of uh, landlords. And you should check out their their history of of, of racial um, dealings. Um, so the notion that white Jews haven't benefited from white supremacy, I think, is false. I think you can benefit from white supremacy even if you profess not to be a racist. And I think that the history of uh, just the 20th century, we don't even have to go back into the fact that Judah P. Benjamin was the vice president of the Confederacy. But even just in the 20th century, white Jews benefited from structural racism. Um, and that's that's another part of the story, that the flip side of the story of the emergence of black nationalist, um, um, black Israelites, is that when I was studying this, I came to realize that the major difference between the black Israelite groups of the 20s and the ones of the 60s, um, you know, in the 20s, they modeled themselves on European Judaism. In the 60s, they didn't. And they emphasized that they that kind of the um, the imposter ness of of white Jews. The big difference is that white Jews had left black neighborhoods between the 20s and the 60s. And that's what James Baldwin was saying. He says, even if you're um, serving the black community by um, uh, by by keeping stores in uh, black neighborhoods, as many Jews did in the 50s, 40s, 60s, um, 70s, he said it's a bitter pill to watch you take the profits from the black community and go to uh, go home to sleep in a neighborhood where uh, we're not allowed, and that was really the case um, from the 20s. Uh, until the early 60s, there were it, it was very common to have these racially restrictive covenants that kept black people out of neighborhoods. Uh, they sometimes uh, uh, tried to keep Jews out as well, but Jews had a much easier time of breaking through. Um, they were not uh, restricted uh, nearly as frequently as, as blacks were. So that's uh, all a long-winded way of saying, I think, that that to really understand anti-Semitism, you have to understand racism, and you have to understand that um, the Black Israelite as a teaching, as a teaching is a theory of history, and it's a form of anti-racism. Um, uh, predominantly, that's that's what it does. Um, and uh, I think it also is, this conversation is a good opportunity um, for us to think about the ways that structural racism have deformed uh, opportunity in in America, um, and uh, and it also suggests the need to to address bigotry of all kinds. Well, Jacob S. Dorman, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Use. I know we talked about uh, the chosen people a lot uh, that book, but maybe you could tell my listeners how they can get uh, your newer book, The yeah. Princess and the Prophet. 
So, you know, you can get these books wherever you buy books um, from the giant distributor whose name I won't use to your local independent bookstore to biblio.com, which is one of my favorites. Uh, you, my, my name is spelled with one O D O R M A N. My first name is Jacob and you can find both chosen people and the princess and the prophet wherever you get books. Are you able to just give a brief idea for my listeners about what the princess and the prophet's about? Okay, so the princess and the prophet is about the founder of Black Muslim contemporary Black Muslim faiths in in America, whose name was Noble Drew Ali, and my book is the first book to trace his backstory. Uh, he was lived this incredible life where he was the first Black star on Broadway in eighteen ninety three. Again, the same year. Um, so in 1893, he starred on Broadway, and then by 1898, he had moved on to become a magician in the circus. He he um, presented himself as a Hindu magician from India, and he married a woman who was part of his act, and they went on to long careers in vaudeville, and he was a jazz musician uh, in, in Chicago as well, uh, until he or they together faked his death and he took um, his brother's identity as Timothy Drew and then became Noble Drew Lee, went back to Chicago um, and infiltrated the Chicago political machine in the era of Al Capone um, and uh, swung Chicago elections and became a political power broker, um, had some of the most powerful Black people in Chicago that were members of his group, which was called the Moorish Science Temple. And then in 1829, um, uh, he died probably uh, violently after having his own business manager um, killed. And then that group split up, and the most prominent group to come out of it was the Nation of Islam, which started as an offshoot of the Moorish Science Temple. So you know, we really wouldn't have uh, the Nation of Islam or uh, Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X uh, without the earlier work of Noble Drew Ali. So I think he lived a really incredible life and uh, made a real contribution, um, not just to American religion, but to American history. Well, I'm going to have to, I, I hope you'll come back on to talk about that book when I've had a chance to read it. Thank you again, uh, Jacob S. Dorman. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure being here. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Patrick Coburn and Professor Jacob S. Dorman. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm 
I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.